these guys are doing this. Uh, BBC have actually just approached this um, company, and they're going to record and store David Attenborough's voice digitally. Oh wow! Because um, I've been talking about it for years, and I was like, somebody has to do this. Somebody has to do yeah. this. Yeah. yeah. We need to preserve him for future generations. Yes. So that you know we can just recreate a, yes. like a completely synthetic David Amber voice. Yeah, perfect. Uh, That's awesome. Doing it it'll be the new it. Siri voice. Yeah, it'll right. be, that would be a great Siri oh, voice. Man. Wouldn't that be the best? <gasps> so gentle yeah. and like, yeah, instead of like Siri, who's like, sorry, Jamie, I did not understand that. And I'm like, bitch. <laughs> whiskey, whiskey, the singer's getting sore. We raise the roof, now when we're lower in the floor. The band is blistered, but we got a little more. When I say one, two, you say three, four, one, two, three, four. Welcome to the Whiskey Topic. I'm Mark Bylock. And I'm Jamie Johnson. And uh, today we're going to be talking about a little bit of blended scotch. Yeah. A little bit of Glasgow. Yes. The bar scene there, which I want to hear all about. Yeah, me too. Um, but mostly about blended scotch. Yeah. Um, we have the very first, as I understand, brand ambassador for uh, Black Bottle Blended, uh, which is also kind of new to LCBO. Um, I believe. Yeah, it's relatively new. I think we got it in last year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'd love, love to welcome Mel Spence to the podcast. You have a lot of mm. tattoos. Um, <laughs> you look like a Glasgowian I'd be very scared of uh, at Glasgow. Um, I think it's like Glaswegian. Glaswegian? Is that I what it is? So. Glaswegian. Right. Yeah. See, how do you know this? I don't I, know. I, I don't know. This is why I get into like... fights in Glasgow because I don't even know <laughs> how to appropriately address people there. <laughs> Oh, it's a dark part of the world. It's a, it's a very uh, seedy bar scene, dangerous. Yeah. I say this from my one night stayed there. I, I really, that's all I know. You know, I think um, for a long, long time, we were really keeping up appearances because that type of appearance meant that no one really gave us any hassle or any trouble or uh, poked or prodded or provoked us. You know, people kind of kept us at a distance, which is what we kind of liked, but... In the last 10, 20 years, it's an image that we've been actively trying to change. Oh, well, I'm sorry. We're a very, very cultural and very hospitable city. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. But in a very, in a very hostile way. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's really, really interesting because people do look scary and intimidating and they will approach you to really help you in a very hostile way. Uh, but it's... It's just us. It's a post-industrial city. It's on the west coast. It's quite weather-beaten. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I went to Russia, I, f- I found that the people in Russia looked very harsh and very, very angry. Mm-hmm. And but when you actually speak to them, uh, you see the warmth and uh, the genuineness coming out. And I was like, they're really, really like the west coast of Scottish people. You know, yeah. it's like they don't carry a smile twenty-four hours a day. Right. And when they do smile, you know that it's. 100% genuine but yeah that, you know I, I approached Russia and Moscow with the same attitude you probably approached Glasgow <laughs> <laughs> I honestly I was only there for one night and I um, I went to kind of the, the restaurant district there and it was beautiful we had this delicious meal and I tend to go into CD bars I yeah, you're like, drawn to I, them anyway so I, I, you I would say dive, that I love you, dive bars you'd be like Manhattan is super seedy there's like <laughs> there's crap fires all over the place it's like no, I think you're just drawn to them. I think that's where you end up. I, I do, I do. I know. I was literally normally I go to like two or three dive bars. I kind of go from like the industry popular dive bar where it's not really a dive bar; it's just made to see. And then I go to the next level below, which is kind of like where do I drink for two dollars dive bar? But- <laughs> and then I go to the where the locals hang out. I think I just started where like at a bar. I had no idea where, right. where in the city. Um, and, and we moved people's drinks, and they were um, 
they were oh. they were moved off their table, which we didn't oh. know belonged to them. Yeah, I was that was very. Pleasant. You learned your lesson, though. Uh, I did. I'm I'm very thankful to uh, Belvini and Glenfiddich for uh, paying them off with all drinks all night. You're welcome. <laughs> that was with uh, <laughs> Beth. Uh, but uh, Belvini uh, and Glenfiddich brand or brand manager rather uh, back then. Oh um, yes, yeah, Beth Ann. And, and, yeah, and Beth Ann. She uh, she nice. was very nice and, and helped to buy off. Um, they kept staring at me. They're very very. Everybody else was very nice. Everybody was very very nice. <laughs> Except and, for the people whose table you stole. So like, I, 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 I wouldn't be nice to you either. <laughs> it, it, uh, that's the funny part. It wasn't even me. It was somebody else in the group. They're like, oh, we'll just move these drinks. I'm like, I don't. And then by then, people approach, and I'm like, oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, boy. So, Balvenny and Glenfiddich took you for a night in Glasgow. They did. It was the last night before our flight in the morning. So, we had a great party, and we partied all night. And then the morning, we had a bus ride to the airport, and we were like... Okay, they're kind of giving you the full experience. Yeah, they did good. They did good. And I I loved, I honestly love Glasgow. I want to go back. I I feel very sad I was only there for one night. It was was really beautiful there. Yeah, it's a great city. And like you you said, you feel it. You go there and you just feel Yeah, there's definitely an atmosphere because um, I've never really lived outside of Scotland, but I did live in Edinburgh, Mm -hmm. which is in the entire side, the different side of the country in the Mm -hmm. East Coast, in a very, very different city. So Glasgow was always... um, it was always renowned as being quite an industrial city, whereas Edinburgh was the market city, so all the finance and that kind of stuff was there, and everything was built in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. So very two different cities. And I lived in Edinburgh for three years, and I got to see firsthand how different a city it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I went back to Glasgow, I was quite taken aback with the the atmosphere and the vibe that you spoke about. And what I really kind of learned, even having grown up in Glasgow, I never really realised this until I left and came back, was what what it really boils down to is people stare in your in your eyes. So whether you're walking down a street or you're standing outside a shop, when people pass by, they will eyeball you. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the psychology behind it is, oh. but if you're not used to it, it is quite intimidating because normal big metropolitan cities like say Edinburgh or London, mm-hmm. the majority of people walk with their heads down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in Glasgow, that's that uniqueness there. So it, it can feel quite intimidating when five-year-old kids are just kind of walking by and eyeballing you and 65-year-old grand women are kind of like doing the exact same thing. You're like, why is everybody like... Is there something in my face and my teeth? Like, yeah. Yeah, no, where I come from, you don't look, you don't make eye contact. No, you don't make eye contact. No, just just don't do it. The only other city I've experienced that in is New York. Yeah. And immediately it felt familiar to me. So it made me feel really at home in New York really straight away. You know, because people were kind of like checking you out. Yeah. So that made me feel safe. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting when you travel, the different culture, the different way people approach each other. Yeah, Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, Wonderful. So I I do hope to be back and and have a better review than I almost got into a fight because I moved people's drinks. (laughs) 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 But we are here to talk about whiskey. Um, uh, So let's talk a little about, I want to talk more about your career as a bartender because I think that's uh, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, I'm sure you've got some wonderful stories for us. Uh, But let's talk about the whiskey first. Uh, Tell us what we need to know about Black Bottle Blended. Well, Black Bottle's a blended scotch, and its uh, roots are from uh, the northeast of Scotland, so Aberdeen, um, up where the oil rigs are. Mm -hmm. Um, But back in the 1850s, 1860s, Aberdeen was quite a well-renowned port town, and it was really well-renowned for shipbuilding. And the founder and creator, Gordon Graham, um, took advantage of that port town because a lot of different trade commodities were coming in and one of the biggest commodities that was coming into Aberdeen at that time was tea. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where Gordon Graham really started his story, was as a tea blender. Now, you can look right into the, the history and the the connection and the stories and relationships mm-hmm. between tea, Scotland, and whiskey, and it's fascinating. Um, but that's the the role in the trade that Gordon Graham really developed his skills for blending. Yeah, tell us about that history. I'd say I don't think we've ever talked about that. No, yeah, no. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah. Man. Yeah, the Scotland's role in the tea industry is, you know, there were innovators in tea, there were drivers of tea, um, and then when you go right back to the opium wars, you find out that they were actually responsible for the, the theft of the secrets of tea uh, cultivation and tea production because you know tea was really seen as a Chinese art you mm-hmm. know almost mm-hmm. like the way that martial arts were seen as this kind of secret art before Bruce Bruce Lee kind of opened it up to a western audience tea was pretty much the same so the majority of plantations they had in like India and certain elements of Africa weren't producing the kind of quantities of tea that was required for the British population at that time so it got into a whole uh, a scenario where Britain was in debt to China, mm-hmm. um, and so they started trading opium um, because they knew that the Chinese loved opium, and you know the East India Company were producing a lot of opium in Africa, so that was the trade-off. Mm-hmm. Until it got to an extent where the Chinese were like, "You've no, no, this has to stop. Everybody's sleeping, right? You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> this has to stop, right? And you know that ended up with Britain declaring war on China, which was crazy." <laughs> so, wow, that took a turn. <laughs> yeah, all over tea. First you were subduing China with, uh, with opiates, and now you're like, we're going to war. And during that, it didn't happen during the first opium war, but certainly towards the end, you know, the tea supply was almost non-existent. Wow. So um, the East India Company, a really famous shadowy organization at the time, um, approached a, a botanist at the Royal Horticultural Society in London mm-hmm. uh, and a really interesting character named Robert Fortune and they they asked him basically go into China and you know sabotage and steal and get all the, the learn all the tea making processes and steal all the plants and he in a period of about four or five years he smuggled out over 20,000 samplings of tea oh wow uh, that went on to become the plantations in Darjeeling Assam, Ceylon, Sri Lanka, um, and those plantations themselves, particularly, was really the breakthrough was by a Scotsman by the name of James Taylor, not the the musician, not the folk singer, not the folk singer, <laughs> no. but it's always my way of remembering his yeah. name. Yeah. Uh, so he's credited with really um, pioneering the cultivation of tea for like for the West mm-hmm. out with uh, China, wow. and within a twenty-year period. Um, the monopoly on Chinese tea. I mean, ni- they, they produced 95% of all tea consumed in the world. Mm-hmm. And over 20 years, that dropped to 15%. And they never recovered over it for about 100 years or so. And it was crazy. Wow. So this was just this wee 55-year-old botanist that probably never left the UK. <laughs> uh, he's kinda, he, yeah. To me, I, I read one of his books. He produced a book uh, called Journey to the Tea Countries. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he gets all these stories and all these near misses. And you know, he had to disguise himself and stuff. Uh, and it, he's almost like a kind of Indiana Jones of the tea. Wow. So, I mean, he was a Scotsman. Um, Tom, um, James Taylor was a Scotsman as well. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the most famous Scotsmen related to tea was um, Sir Thomas Lipton. Mm-hmm. He really innovated the whole, the branding and the blending of teas and made it like a household name. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so that was the type, that was the era that Gordon Graham, and that was the landscape that Gordon Graham kind of found himself in mm-hmm. with blending tea, and that's how, you know, how big a deal it was in Scotland and how big a deal Scotland was to blended tea. So the skill set that he developed, blending teas and blending different ingredients together, yeah. is what he transferred to blending whiskies. Because oh. you remember in the 1860s, and even before that, Scotch whisky, as it was, was quite harsh. You know, we, the legislation that you had on Scotch whisky wasn't really there. Mm-hmm. You had a few things like the Excise Act that came about in the 1820s, but by the time that actually took effect and you had licensed and um, legitimate whisky distilleries, it took quite a wee while. Right. Um, so the whiskies that were being produced from a, a malt distillery would probably be quite unrefined and very similar to, like, Grand Moonshine, you know? Quite. Yeah. So it was blending that really refined it. Yeah. And, and blending was really responsible for a lot, you know, the mm-hmm. innovation... Uh, packaging, the the marketing of yeah. Scotch whiskey mm-hmm. to a certain extent. But the guys that did this weren't whiskey makers, they were entrepreneurs like Gordon Graham. I mean, mm-hmm. Gordon Graham was bottling beers, importing wine, and even selling insurance. So he was very much an on- entrepreneurial type of guy. And if you look at other famous blenders, like uh, John Walker, mm-hmm. again, he was a greengrocer and tea blender, mm-hmm. Chivas Brothers, yeah. Matthew mm-hmm. Gloke. Oh, none of these guys were whiskey makers. They were like whiskey innovators, you yeah, know? yeah. And if it wasn't for blended scotch, we probably wouldn't even be talking about single malt. Yeah. So, getting back to the liquid itself, a black yes. bottle. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's in a black bottle, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know that was one of the most innovative things in whiskey at that mm-hmm. time. And um, before Alexander Walker went for the black, uh, the square, the square bottle with the the, the slanted label, mm-hmm. uh, Gordon Graham had put his whiskey in here a black glass bottle okay oh, interesting yeah. which yeah so i mean when this initially was released it was actually just called gordon graham's special liqueur whiskey yeah, uh, and the it, black was implied the bottle yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it became known colloquially as the black bottle and then they changed the name it to the black bottle whiskey yeah oh, um, interesting but the really interesting aspect of it was is that you know the black glass which is quite a tough process actually it's quite a dirty process producing black glass it's not as oh simple, easy, and cost-effective. It was like clear, green, or brown. Um, The manufacture of the black glass could only be found in Germany. But it was such a unique, distinct, Mm -hmm. like, offering that they had to go with it. But then, obviously, they couldn't get the black glass after 1914. Oh, interesting, yeah, because that resources went elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So the the First World War, trading ceased with Germany. Uh, and it meant that they had to find something a wee bit more locally sourced. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which was a green bottle. Okay. Oh. So for 96 years, it was in a green bottle. Mm-hmm. It's actually, it was actually in a, a green bottle longer than it was in a black bottle. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> it was still called black bottle. It was still called black bottle. <laughs> but that, I mean, I guess that kind of sums up Scotch mentality a wee bit, yes. you know. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm actually not surprised that the name didn't change like that. Yeah, it's right. perfect. Yeah. <laughs> it's perfect. Brilliant. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So the liquid itself is really much a representation of that time mm-hmm. and that region. So before the the kind of generalization of regions came into place from about the 1950s, 1960s, with Speyside, Highland, Lowland, Isla, that was never really a thing during mm-hmm. this period of blending. Mm-hmm. Um, the majority of whiskies that Gordon Graham would have been buying would have been from a Speyside and Highland region run about Aberdeen. Yeah. So they've been quite quite earthy, quite spicy, 
and quite smoky whiskies that Huda got. Right. Um, so this is a real representation of what that whiskey would have been like. So yeah, I you mean, have a we, real interesting balance of different characteristics on it. Yeah, we, we should explain. So blenders typically took from a bunch of different distilleries, yeah. not just one. Mm-hmm. And they, it was literally that art of blending where it's like we're trying to get a common flavor. Not necessarily, but in, in larger productions. And they would just buy barrels from whomever they could procure barrels from. Um, yeah, that's, that's a great part of the story. Um, and this is also, like, yeah. Um, what's um, So uh, what distilleries are involved in, in uh, this? There's around 20. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, around 20. And, you know, depending where I go, like um, in Germany, they're very, very specific about, you know, the provenance of the whiskey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I understand that to be, you know, that's relative when it comes to single malt. Yeah. Uh, a blend is a wee bit more organic I'd say it's a wee mm-hmm. bit more kind of um, looser mm-hmm. um, because really what you're looking for is the end product when it comes to a blend that's right. the important right. as- yeah. aspect is what the end product actually tastes like and feels like um, and throughout that blending process it could be various different single malts that will become part of that story over a period of time yeah depend on availability so i mean the consistent uh you know for listeners the the consistent flavor would be the 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 neutral grain whiskey that goes in there so it's got kind of that neutral grain is your starting point or the the and then you add single malts into there to get to create that blended scotch um so kind of controls the variables a little bit because you're you're using that that neutral grain um and to get a specific flavor so how, how would you describe a black bottle like how would you describe the flavor it's for me as a bartender right it really there's three key flavor characteristics of black bottle that really stick out to me um, and it always has for a, for a number of years now um, because you have a general idea of what blended whiskey should look like taste like and feel like whereas this is really unique and it's really different and one of the first things that stands out to me firstly is the color it's, mm-hmm. I mean it's quite dark mm-hmm. for a blend yeah. it's almost similar to like an aged rum mm-hmm. um, the nose is very specific it's really unique as well because with that color in mind you don't expect it to have, be so light and floral. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what it can be like sometimes when you stick your nose into a whiskey glass. Sometimes it can be overpowering with the alcohol there. Whereas this is quite soft and quite mm-hmm. subtle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, the first part of the flavor that's really distinct to me is the sweetness right at the very start. Mm-hmm. So you'll get this really um, distinct kind of toasted vanilla oak kind of mm-hmm. sweetness kind of woody kind of sweetness mm-hmm. almost similar to a bourbon yeah mm-hmm. yeah and then right in the mid palate there's this dry spice and it's a it's not like a sweet spice like maybe cinnamon or like, like that or a kind of um, it's not like a like a savory spice like pepper or anything mm-hmm. it's more like a like an armagnac type of spice I mm-hmm. think that's probably the closest I can get it it's quite dry mm-hmm yeah. And then at the end, you get this really subtle, lingering smoke. Smoke, yeah. But the the smoke is quite intriguing, actually, because when you talk about Scotch whiskey and you talk about smoke, you mm-hmm. immediately think Isla. Peaty, Pe- like iodine yeah. yeah. But this is not. No, it's not. No, this is like a really pleasant. Mark has real trouble with I it. I know, I don't get smoke on this. <laughs> he <sorry>. never, <laughs> ever gets smoke. He's like, is this smoky? Um, but I, there is this, like, it's a wonderful, like, 
campfirey smoke. Yeah, it's, it's not. Really natural. It's really natural. It's not a. It's not a medicinal at all. Um, it's quite like mezcal, actually. It's a yes. bit like the kind of natural smoke you have for mezcal. Yes. Yes. So th- I mean. I promise you, it's there. I, I'm, I'm sure it is. I'm like still trying to see it. I don't know. It's I would say lightly smoked below my radar. Smoked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Below, well, I see yeah. that bottle of Oxmoor up there, man. So I'm yeah. surprised. Right. Yeah. That, that's on my radar. That I can smell the smoke. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Yeah, you can smell the smoke as soon as you open the bottle. Right. I, it was, I, was, uh, I had a Christmas party, I think, or it was my birthday party, I can't remember, and Mark came over, and all of a sudden I was like, what's that smell? I was like, someone opened my Octomore, and like Mark like walks out of the room, and I was like, I smelled that before I even knew. I was just like, so who opened my Octomore? Mark's like, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, but this is... Uh, this is quite a, if you weren't into peated whiskeys, um, you, you would still really, really enjoy this, I think. There's three ways that you can approach this. And as a bartender, for me, it's important to have versatility in a product. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Blinded Scotch really missed out on that whole golden age of cocktails. You know, sure, Blinded Scotch point. didn't yeah. come about around to, like, popularity in the early 1900s. So it, it missed out a lot in the whole, that wave of creativity with Manhattans and old fashions and that kind of stuff so it missed out on that a wee bit and that's why American whiskey takes like prominence in in cocktail culture and I totally understand that okay Um, so there's never really been a dialogue or communication from a blended whiskey about how you can actually utilise the liquid it's always been like oh throw it in a penicillin oh throw it in a Manhattan oh throw it in an old fashioned but there's never been a reason why you know it's always been like just do it you know just Mm. do it and it well I'm a bar. T- I've been a bartender for 18 years, so that kind of sales pitch and that type of it, it would never really work on me. Mm-hmm. So I would, you know, it has to be, it has to be relevant and it has to be grounded, mm-hmm. and you know, those three aspects to me give a bartender so much more ground to play with. Yeah, it's like, oh well, I can use this like a mezcal. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can use it like a like a brandy. Oh, I can use it like a bourbon as well. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason why you get that sweetness out is actually really important. It's one of the other um, unique aspects of blended Scott, uh, black ball is that for a period of around about three to six months, depending on the weather in Scotland, so we've been consistent, but we uh, uh, go through a double maturation period of aging it in brand new virgin oak casks. Okay. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it adds that sweetness at the start, but it, what it does is it give it a really nice balance. You know, because, yeah, really you don't get that overly sweetness, you don't get the overly spice, all the smoke, it's just... Mm-hmm. A really nice marriage of the the free kind of. And, and you do this with the the almost final products of the once it's been blended, then you double yes. mature it. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, yeah. I've never heard of that before. With yeah, well, and that would explain if it's a virgin oak cast like that. That spice right there is like that's. Yeah. yeah that makes a lot of sense. That's actually it's a nice part of the, the for because blended scotch tends to be get a little thin or I guess a little thick and kind of a little boring towards the middle and yeah. this I guess that explains why I kind of get more of the peppery spe- zest yeah. and all that it's a it's very nice yeah nice and sport. that dryness as well it's the yeah, yeah that's really nice yeah, it's very yeah. Cool. what's your current uh, cocktail of choice for this one right now I think the one that it works best in mm-hmm. um, is a boulevardier oh my gosh oh, nice. yes because uh, the thing I'm not a big Negroni fan yeah. I've never really understood it. <laughs> um, and this this might be a bit blasphemous, but oh, I, okay. I think it's I think it's an unbalanced drink, the Negroni. Mm. Too uh, s- too sweet too too. Uh, I, I I don't know what the gin is doing there. Um, I, I don't really think this. it's. I love this. Mark, 
I love yeah. this. I love my favorite I Negronis don't I know, smell like don't taste like gin at all. I this don't love Negronis <laughs> either, so I'm really on board for this. Mark loves Negronis. Only like, only like barely aged when I can't taste the gin. Right, or right, right. That's okay. The gym component. Yeah. From it. I'm like, <laughs> it may as well be just anything else uh, where I don't taste the gin. Yeah. It's, I think putting gin up against Campari is like trying to race a like a, a Lamborghini in a pickup truck you know it's, there's no contest um, unless maybe you're going to use like a like a navy strength gin or something like right, that right, then right. there's a you know there's a bit more ammunition there yeah whereas if you're just using like a regular gin it's yeah. I don't think it's got any chance whatsoever against yeah. Campari Campari's yeah. so big and it's so, so bold and, and it's and so bold. really really difficult to actually work with mm-hmm. um, whereas if a whiskey stands a better chance you know mm-hmm. um, but then you know an American whiskey, I don't really think it brings that much fight mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with a Campari either. Mm-hmm. If maybe a rye, yeah. you know, a rye is quite robust yep. and it's quite peppery and it's quite it's quite bold. Um, but certainly a bourbon, I don't think it really mm-hmm. does that great, even mm-hmm. in a Boulevardia. Um, for me, the Black Ball, because it has that spice and it yeah. has that smoke, it just works really, really well on a Boulevardier. Mm. I love it. I'm into Boulevardiers right now. Yeah, I'm making really them at home are. a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so that's And it was awesome. created by a Scotsman as well. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, um, I don't think I have any vermouth left in the house, do I? Oh... No, I, well, yeah, I we, think we drank I, it all the last yeah, time. We we did. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we just nailed it. You know, I ended up using fortified wine instead of. <laughs> oh yeah, and it was terrible. That was a, not a great cocktail. No, it was not great. It was not my, <laughs> was not my proudest moment. Because um, normally at this point of the show, Mark would get up and go. Doo, 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 yeah, doo, yeah. Doo, usually doo, when doo, 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 we talk about which cocktails we'd like to make with it, Mark just does it. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, but no vermouth. No, no, I still haven't. Uh, um, that's like my. I know it sounds quite um, stereotypical that. One of my biggest passions is like Amaro and fortified wines. Yeah. Uh, being a bartender, you know, it's like, sure, oh, yeah, yeah, of course you like Amaro. Of course you do. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but for a taste point of view. And then, actually, one of the bars that I opened by in Glasgow was based around uh, Italian drinking culture. Okay. Um, it was an old cafe. Um, the site we found, we were quite lucky. It was in a new up-and-coming area in Glasgow called Finiston. And um, me and my two partners had found a site. And it was really cool. It was the right size and it was the right area. Everything was really, really cool. Yeah. And we were really struggling what we could call it. And as we took down the the hoardings and the, the boardings and stuff that was up, we found this original hand-painted sign from the late 1800s. Wow. Oh, and nice. it was called Kelvin Grove Cafe and it had established 1890s. It had um, ices, a speciality and stuff, which was obviously in relation to the Italian ice cream cones. But for us, it worked with our whole... Ice, wow. ice, hand cut ice program and stuff yeah, yeah. I did a bit of research into it and uh, the whole Italian emigres into uh, Glasgow and in Edinburgh particularly and I uh, looked at the type of culture and food that they brought with them whereabouts they came from in Italy so I mean anything whenever I do anything it's got to be grounded in reality so yeah. it's there's a there's a heritage and a lineage there so that the narrative is real yeah. and it's not just some rubbish story so when I was at Blythe's Square Hotel, it was all based around 1920s style uh, cocktail culture because that's when the actual building itself was built. Nice. So when we opened up Kelvin Grove Cafe, what we did was we focused on Italian style drinking, but we had to build it in a way that was cocktails because, as you'll be aware, Glasgow doesn't really have an, uh, an, like an aperitif culture <laughs> or a, like um, outdoor drinking culture. Well, we do have outdoor drink, but... <laughs> It's, it's not done in the same kind of fancy way as in the continent. Um, it's more of a means to an end rather than you know, sitting and enjoying the, the weather. Um, so we had to do it in a way that was 
relative to the history of the the actual venue itself, mm-hmm. but then relative to the consumer. So what we did was we, when I say we, I mean the royal we, I mean I. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did have a team that helped me with this, obviously. But I created a almost like a reverse cocktail. Mm-hmm. So you know the like the reverse Manhattan. So it has more of like vermouth in it than than whiskey. Right. So we created a a, a format to build drinks in this way. So we'd use Amaro's and um, fortified wines and the vermouths as the actual base in mm-hmm. the cocktail. And then where appropriate, we'd use the spirit as the modifier. And what it really did was, because if you built a cocktail of a vermouth or Amaro, it's gonna taste, it's not gonna taste like a cocktail, it's gonna taste like a glass of wine. Mm-hmm. So right. immediately your guest is gonna be like, I'm paying seven pounds for this. <laughs> so what the spirit did was, as well as add a bit of depth and flavour, it also added a bit of backbone. Yeah. Um, but it allowed us to play with something that was as complex as, I say, a blended scotch. So an Amaro is, you know, it's some of them are spirits, some of them are wines, and they've been infused with 40 different crazy herbs and then yeah. put into a barrel and aged for months, and you're like, the amount of depth of flavour and characteristic it gives you is perfect for a base of a cocktail. Yeah, yeah. But it just allowed us to do something really different and unique. Um, so That's awesome. Yeah, I, I don't know how I got into that subject I don't know, it's a great story. That's, that's amazing. So yeah, I love that you took it to the next level. Uh, from Inspired by an old old uh, old sign, an old building, that yeah. you kind of took it to that, that spot. You know, the family... Um, in Glasgow, we've got quite an odd culture where we don't really write much down. Mm-hmm. Well, we used we didn't used to. So pre Second World War in Glasgow, it's really difficult to find out history and information about the city and yeah. the people. Um, everything was kind of orally transmitted and passed down that way. Yeah. It's kind of like Cuba actually. Like Glasgow has a lot of similarities <laughs> to Cuba, like um, post revolution. Um, <laughs> Just a shame we don't have the same sunshine. <laughs> yeah. However, um, not even close. I ended up finding out the history of this cafe from a writer who wrote about old Glasgow, and he was sent a letter from the owner's daughter Maria, who was now ninety-five and living on an island in the off oh, the wow. west coast of Scotland, and she sent us the whole story about how her family, her father, um, walked from Frosinone in the south of Italy and it took them three years hmm. to walk to Scotland. I don't think they meant to be in Scotland. I'm pretty sure they were heading probably America or something yeah. like that, but they landed oh, in Scotland wow. and they stayed. Gee, man, we walk a lot, but that's, three years is a bit of Seems a long like walk. Seems like a bit much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, it's, uh, <laughs> that's amazing. That's it's really crazy, great. Yeah. Gosh. So as global uh, brand ambassador, you must have been doing a lot of travel a lot, yeah. Yeah. Has there has there been any um, like I just I, I'm so curious about when you go into like different markets and different places. Like, is there anyone that just has absolutely no you know patience for blended scotch at this point? And and what's what are the the big sort of what are the barriers? challenges? Yeah. Yeah. Um, some markets are different from others. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have like very mature whiskey markets mm-hmm. um, Germany is certainly a very mature whiskey market mm-hmm. and they have quite a conservative approach to whiskey right. um, I, to be honest the hardest market in the world is Scotland because we're probably right. you know 
I'd say a Presbyterian attitude towards scotch, where it's very <laughs> kind of thou shall not drink right. scotch with whiskey or water. Right. Whereas in Germany, it's more about an understanding and a possession of that knowledge. Mm. So they are very, very... They have this whole kind of custodial kind of attitude towards whiskey that they're very, very protective over it, mm-hmm. even against Scottish people. Right. <laughs> um, so it is quite... Um, it's more of a cultural difference as well. Mm-hmm. So it is quite challenging in Germany because they're very much about single malt. Mm-hmm. They're very much about age variations and they're very much about uh, peat. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Like peat smoke, they're very, very, very big into their smoke. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is challenging, but there is ways around about that. You know? mm-hmm. And to be honest, most of my focus is in the on-trade. Yep. So dealing specifically with bartenders rather than consumers most yeah. of the time. Yeah. Um, and and with bartenders, I mean, I was a bartender for eighteen years. It, it's it's mainly about etiquette and just being real and being grounded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that is it takes time to build these relationship with bartenders, mm-hmm. but the the relationships that hold for so long. I mean, like the first time I came to Toronto, I was blown away by how hospitable and how relaxed and chilled everybody was here. Thank you. Um, <laughs> James, like on behalf of Toronto, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. But this is my first time back here, and already, like you know. Uh, some of my colleagues here are like, oh, we spoke to the guys at Rush Lane, like, Zach, they're so excited that you're back, they're nice. going to come see you tonight, and, you know, it's just, it's really, really nice. Um, the on, the kind of bartending community is like that quite, quite globally, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, it's, it, and, you know, Toronto, like, we have a great, a great bartender community here, and, and Mark and I wander in and out. Um, yes. <laughs> we're recognized sometimes. Mark more than me. We're for very sure. good consumers. Yeah. Here, so it comes down to. <laughs> I think one of the yeah. challenges I see on a global level is the. You know the, the that global trend is becoming a lot more prominent now, that. It's getting harder and harder to define small trends and where they actually originate from because, mm-hmm. the community is becoming so tighter, right. and with Facebook and social media you know trends like spread so so quickly Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so you know it's you may see a trend like the guys in Russia man I'm so blown away by how on point they are when it comes to trend like they're so aware they're so knowledgeable about what's happening in New York Paris London like they're really really on it you know Um, so I I was expecting Russia to be nightclubs and uh, bottle service to the table, right, right, right. Yeah, like yeah, Miami, vodka. kind of, yeah, vibe, yeah. That whole and thing, right. The bars they have there are incredible. Like I went in like genuine speakeasies. Like I don't mean like, I mean like right. a real, a like, real speakeasy. Yeah. 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 You know, and like, yeah, they get they get it. They really, really do. And St. Petersburg as well. They've got a great bar scene. But um, the global community of bartenders is it's it's getting harder and harder to find markets that are really different mm-hmm. and really unique mm-hmm. and really really specific mm-hmm. you know the the global the, those trends are becoming very very global now mm-hmm. yeah. um, which is, is challenging for a brand mm-hmm. uh, but also good for a brand as well because it means that your narrative on a global level can become you know wider yeah, yeah, yeah. By genuine speakeasies, we mean places you can get arrested for drinking, right? Is that the, uh, that's the definition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> right. Just wanted to be clear because there's a lot of speakeasy bars. There's a lot um, of speakeasy style style bars, yeah. which are wonderful yeah. and yeah. I love them. Uh, but the the arrested part is the important thing. The, that's right, right, right. Are, it was so funny because um, yeah, I was blown away by this bar. It was I didn't even know it was you know at that status 
when it was. And I was so blown away by the entrance, the anticipation, mm-hmm. the the look of the bar, the feel of the bar, the music, the service, the cocktails. It was one of the... Was, I mean, I travel all over the world, so I got thousands of bars. And there's only so many bars that really check every box for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was one of them. And I was like, how does nobody else know about this bar? Like, you need to tell people. You need to go on social media. And he's like, well, well, um, um, um. <laughs> and bef- before he cut me off, I had uh, put it up on Facebook and tagged, like, Jared Brown and, and Phil Duff. And, like, you need to come to this bar. It's amazing. And he's like, we, we don't have a license. And I'm like, what? No, we don't have a license. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll take that down then. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's no, and it's a whole other podcast. So I, we we should have one point. It was about yeah. um, places where it could be illegal to drink. Yes. And the the culture there. Mm-hmm. In some cases, it's like a limited liquor license. Some places it's zoned, and and the culture of drinking and mm-hmm. what people go to mm-hmm. uh, to have that cocktail scene. Um, today, speaking of bars, you're going to be at Pretty Ugly Bar, um, one wonderful mezcal bar here here in Toronto. Yeah. Um, pretty, probably going to be a pretty high volume night for you. So, what are you, what other type of drinks are you going to be making? I've actually um, styled the drinks around um, like a mezcal kind of style drink. So mm-hmm. I'll be working with flavors like grapefruit and um, citrus and keeping them quite light. Mm-hmm. There is one drink in particular that is a wee bit more challenging and a wee bit more smokier. Um, awesome. But yeah, I've kept them quite... I wanted to be quite um, considerate to the venue that I'm in yeah. uh, and not just be knocking at Manhattans and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So mm-hmm. uh, the drinks are styled like a mezcal style drink. And... As I said earlier, with that that smoke element, it's something that we can we can work in that that area with, you know. Uh, and I'm going to be bringing along some of these guys as well. What you got there? It's some tea the bitters. Black bottle oh, tea bitters. Yeah. Very cool. So um, this is um, getting back to the, the whole story about you know building a narrative that's real and grounded. Um, this is real. This is really kind of like a like a materialistic expression of that history and heritage of, of, of Black Ball. So it's it's relevant in a lot of ways because it it deals with the the blending mm-hmm. skill mm-hmm. by blending the teas and the botanicals in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also kind of... I see it as if, that if Gordon Graham was about today yeah. and he was still alive right. and blending whiskey and blending tea... That he would be producing the bitters as well, yeah, because it's a it's a product that's relevant to bartenders yeah. and it's usable. Yeah. Uh, plus, it's got tea in it as well. Oh, that's so, excellent. Uh, the lapsang souchong is quite prominent in it, but it's a bitters that really can be used with gin, with rum. Mm-hmm. It's quite a versatile product, echoing the versatility of the whiskey itself, you know. Nice. So I'm going to be using that in one or two of the cocktails. Oh, very cool. That's awesome. Well, we've got an early morning tomorrow, but we may have to uh, no, sneak to. No, we do have two. an early, I know. <laughs> Jamie's already dreading her tomorrow morning. Um, <laughs> it's early. Um, no, I think I, I think that's very cool that you're using those sort of flavors. Like typically when you think about like a, like a cocktail made with whiskey, you don't think about citrus and you don't think about, you know, light and mm-hmm. fresh. You think about spirit forward and, and a little, you know, so I, I, I think that's great. Are you seeing more, uh, scotch cocktails coming out now? Cause there's a lot more sort of blended, um, or at least here we're starting to get like, we, we, we don't quite have the same sort of, um, whiskey influence, um, 
because of our liquor stores. Um, not that I'm insulting them at all whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> right. But we don't have as much. So we're, we're starting to see a lot more um, like blended scotch um, cocktails. Is that, is, are we just really behind the times here? Or no, not so much. Is that, no. is that, <laughs> or right, is everyone now doing this? There's a lot of shifting sands in the whiskey industry right mm-hmm. now. Um, not just in Scotch, but in you know uh, Irish mm-hmm. and American whiskey and Japanese whiskey as well. So there's a lot of shifting sands in, in all those whiskey categories. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it it's interesting mm-hmm. and it's challenging at mm-hmm. the same time. Um, and where you know Scotch whiskey kind of gets its foothold because not so much in blends, but in certainly in single malts, we have some pretty robust legislation mm-hmm. that um, a lot of people find um, hinder hinder them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they find they're quite archaic laws as mm-hmm. well, and legislations have been put in place. But m- my argument is that it, it's those the, these legislations that really make Scotch whiskey what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's definitely room for innovation. Yeah. But if you look at the challenges that a lot of single malt producers are facing right now, where like uh, age stocks, um, you know, I, I I find it quite confusing for the consumer when you start getting a real clear cut definition of what the whisk expressions are through 10, 12, 15, 18, 25, even though the consumer might not know exactly how that age imparts on the flavour, they understand the process are, as it gets older, it gets more expensive and more right. premium, right, right they get <laughs> right. that. But yeah. with the the challenge that are facing a lot of single malt producers just now, we you know not having age stock, so they're starting to put NES, and that's a big challenge in itself because mm-hmm. you're removing that that safety blanket for the consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, you're saying, well, you know, it used to be called ten, but now it's called amber, or uh, I want to be careful not to mention any specific. Like, <laughs> I think you just terms. did. <laughs> um, yeah, but these are quite generic terms: yes. amber, gold, <laughs> platinum. Right, right. Um, <laughs> I think for in that midst of confusion, blended scotch offers mm-hmm. like so much more consistency mm-hmm. and you know ability for the consumer to have a lot more confidence in it because that's the beauty of blended scotch is that consistency through time, regardless of you know stock limitations or stock availability. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be that consistent product that cuts through all that kind of yeah. chat. Yeah. And you know, the Japanese are even falling for it. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. Run that each stock as well. Absolutely, um, and I think the nice nice thing here is that you know we've seen single malt Scotch prices go up so dramatically. Um, there's the kind of the blended whiskeys on the blended Scotch in the marketplace have really been coming in at that kind of for us thirty dollar price point, mm-hmm. possibly America for a twenty dollar price point. But they've really been coming in and taking over a segment that's very important. You want to be drinking a Scotch for thirty dollars that you're going to enjoy. Um, even even a sipping scotch, uh, which it certainly is, um, that's a wonderful place to be. I mean, we need more products in that in that range. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I think you will see a more focus on that. Yeah, excellent. Well, that's really great. I think that I'm enjoying this certainly. Like we, we've had, you know, when we started this podcast, we've had no blended scotches on, that's the, right. on the podcast, and I we've know. had more options. And again, this is very yeah. much an Ontario statement because we, yeah. you know, it comes and goes. But um, but it's yeah. nice to see that market expand. But it's so funny given the fact that Canadian whiskey, like historically, is we're blended whiskey. Absolutely. I don't know why we don't talk about blends more. Like right. we we do, you know, you sort of whiskey 
people get caught up in the the premiumization of the whole thing, but forgetting that like most of the whiskey that is made in the world goes into blends. Right. We're, we shouldn't be snooty about this at all. We should not be snooty about this. <laughs> this is, we should not. Like it's it's you know it's and it still makes up like you know most of the volume in terms of sales for for scotch. Like you're still looking blends are so like find your blend. Like yeah. that's a thing. Like find your blended scotch and and. Um, or your blended whatever whiskey, like yeah, I, yeah, yeah, they're out there, point. and the price point's great, and they're so you can do so much with them. Um, you know, if you find a nice one, you can sip on it just as well as you could mix it into a cocktail. Yeah. So yeah, this is great. No, it's great. Um, Mel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Uh, yeah, really uh, looking forward to uh, pounding down some cocktails later on tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Subtle. 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 I know, but uh, we, but no, thank you for so much coming on. Um, so uh, where can people find you on social media? Because I think it sounds like you travel a great deal, and this will be fun to follow you on. I have a, an Instagram account, which yeah, is... We love Instagram. Yeah, it's a wee bit different. Um, I kind of focus on stuff that kind of catches my eye mm-hmm. when I'm traveling. Love it. Which is mostly Adidas, clouds and sneakers clouds yeah, sneakers and... clouds and road signs okay yeah uh, so yeah that's just a, a theme to yeah that's true Mine's it's a booze. mal a uh, understroke black bottle okay and then on on my now my facebook page is pretty yeah that's all about football so you don't <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> no that's awesome so do follow mal on mal underscore black bottle uh, on instagram for your road signs and clouds and Love it. sneakers. Uh, Jamie, where can people find you? you can find me at Bourbon Thing on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm at uh, Mark Bylock, M E R K B Y L O K. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Cheers. 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 <laughs>